The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Will Appleton with an episode of Chatter for November 20th, 2022. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Chatter, a podcast hosted by David Priest that features in-depth discussions with fascinating people at the creative edges of national security. Today's episode of Chatter is entitled Satellites, Space Debris, and Hollywood with Aaron Bateman. In the episode, Priest sat down with Bateman, a historian at George Washington University, to chat about early satellite technology and attempts at anti-satellite activity, the problem of space debris, on-screen portrayals of satellite warfare, and more. This is Chatter. Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, historian Aaron Bateman on satellites, space debris, and Hollywood. Movies from Moonraker to Goldeneye to even Star Wars, on some level, it gives us a general framework for thinking about what does a security dilemma in space look like in the near term and the long term. Even General John Hyten, when he was commander of U.S. Strategic Command, he said, you know, Star Wars like battles in space, uh, that's not what it looks like today, but there could be some elements of that in the very distant future. I think that what GoldenEye does is it carries forward this narrative that we can find earlier in the Cold War that if you control space, then you can control the Earth. You know, space is this decisive high ground, which is really a significant overstatement of reality. Aaron, thanks for joining me on Chatter. Thanks for having me. I want to really jump into all the science fiction stuff that I know we're going to get to, but I'm holding myself back because we need to set some stages here. So I wanted you to come on because you have done a lot of no kidding research into anti-satellite weapons and orbital debris and all the issues that come with some of the things that are happening in primarily low earth orbit, I assume, but also in, in other orbits. Um, so I think we need to set the stage for all of that by talking a little bit about the actual science, about the actual history, and and then we'll start picking apart movies, uh, especially in the James Bond franchise that have tried to do this on screen. Let's start with with you, though. How did you get into a career that involves you studying 
the the politics and some of the science, but especially the politics and the security of space. How how did that start? Yeah, well, I'll I'll say um, it was somewhat of an accident, to be completely honest. So it all started when I was an Air Force intelligence officer. Um, my first assignment was at the National Security Agency, and I was initially working counterterrorism and some other issues. But um, when I moved into some other mission areas, I became exposed to space and counter space issues in the intelligence community, um, looking at what other countries uh, have been developing. Um, and then when I moved to the Pentagon, I was specifically working on space-based intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance programs, not only thinking about how do we use those kinds of capabilities for things like um, global awareness, um, support to, to military forces deployed in different parts of the world, but also thinking about what are some of the threats to those overhead systems. So when I decided to pursue my PhD um, in the history of science and technology at Johns Hopkins University, I really wanted to delve into, well, what's the longer history behind these security dilemmas that we see in space today? And not just look at it from a, a U.S. or a U.S. and Soviet perspective, but also understanding how these kinds of space security issues have affected U.S. relations with allies as well. Sure, sure. So you were working on terrorism, like so many people in that time frame. It seemed like a lot of people working on intelligence issues were. It's not natural in most agencies and departments for somebody who's working on terrorism or terrorism related issues to be exposed to space operations and reconnaissance satellites. So without giving us any secrets, how, how did that exposure happen? How, how were you able to learn enough about that to know you were interested? Well, um, even though a lot of the targets I was dealing with were terror related, I was working on the, the collection side. So I became a subject matter expert in using a wide variety of, of technical intelligence uh, um, sources, one of them being overhead systems. So by getting involved in, um, in, in the operation and tasking of overhead systems, mm -hmm. that was my foray into that side of things. And so in addition to being at the Pentagon, I ultimately worked with uh, the National Reconnaissance Office and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. So mm -hmm. even though the, the targets I was initially focusing on were, were terror and, and insurgency related, I was able to use those technical skills um, that I developed on the collection side uh, to then move into other areas that were more directly space related. That's really, that's really interesting and, and hopefully informative for some of our listeners that even analysts working on a very specific topic, you, you have to get familiar with some of the intelligence collection means in order to judge the quality and credibility of your sources. And right. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember before NGA with NEMA, uh, National Imagery and Mapping Agency, and then, and then NGA, getting familiar with some of the, what we would call technical collection uh, systems and just being blown away, right? Like, right without a scientific background, I was just amazed at what we were able to do and how we were able to do it. And I didn't choose to get a PhD in it, but I've always been fascinated with the architecture of it all mm -hmm. and uh, amazed by the hundreds or thousands of people that work on that architecture to, to make sure that we, we see what we need to see and pick up what we need to pick up. Were you inspired to, to go into that in any way? Because as a kid, you were watching the the science fiction movies and TV shows. Did any of them kind of resonate with you so that it was just kind of cool to be working on things related to space? 
Yeah. So I, I would say for me, it was, um, I mean, somewhat techno thriller sci-fi. I would say more than anything, it was Tom Clancy novels and, and movies and uh, reading some of his work in the 1980s, talking about things that would grow out of, you know, strategic defense initiatives, space-based missile defense, anti-satellite weapons. I was just really taken by this whole idea of arms race or uh, superpower competition moving into the space domain. And so it was very gratifying when I actually was able to, to move into that arena professionally. We were just chatting uh, on Chatter with Ben Griffin, who's written the book on Reagan yeah. and the pop culture and influence there. And we talked a lot about Tom Clancy because he he figured out a way to write chapter after chapter in his dissertation about Tom Clancy, which seems like a scam to me. But <laughs> Hunt for Red October, as I recall, did not have a lot of satellite mm -hmm. stuff in it. I think there was some, but it wasn't a, a heavy element. But in some of his later books, right, he Clancy really seemed to get into that side of the, the picture, didn't he? Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and so not only capturing the fact that satellites are really important for gathering intelligence, but also highlighting the fact that the Soviets were working on capabilities specifically designed to undermine U.S. overhead reconnaissance systems. So I think that uh, certainly given the very limited information that was available in the 1980s when he was writing those books, he actually did a fairly effective job of capturing some of the, the accurate dimensions of, of that security dilemma at the end of the Cold War, which we've now seen yeah. a resurgence of. Yeah. Well, let's go back because, you know, Clancy was building on several decades worth of real history as well mm -hmm. as some fictional representations of what space and satellites were doing. But my my amateur brain is telling me that, you know, we had Sputnik and we had U.S. satellites um, in the 50s, but it wasn't mm -hmm. till what, maybe 1960 or 61 that the first the imagery satellite Corona, was it, went up? Right. Right. Describe that to me and and how game changing was that? Yeah. So before Corona, we had the U-2 aerial reconnaissance program. And so the U-2 aerial reconnaissance program was able to provide a significant amount of data on the Soviet Union, but still fairly limited because there was a lot of political sensitivity with, with overflights of the Soviet Union. Um, after the May 1960 shoot down of Francis Gary Powers, the U.S. really lost the ability um, to gather significant data inside the Soviet Union mm -hmm. on things like Soviet um, rocket and, and missile development. Mm -hmm. So Corona is launched in 1960, and the first mission of Corona was able to return more imagery of the Soviet Union than all prior U-2 flights combined. Um, and then by 1961, we have the establishment of the National Reconnaissance Office, which at the time was a covert agency which oversaw the development and operation of both reconnaissance satellites, imagery, as well as signals intelligence. And then also until the, the early to mid-1970s, the NRO was still involved in some um, uh, uh, aerial overflights, both manned and unmanned. And am I right that, because I'm not that old, am, am I right that information about the U.S. satellite program was, was very tightly controlled? I mean, was the NRO one of those organizations that no one outside the government knew existed? Right. So I think something that we take for granted today, because we have satellite imagery of Ukraine on the news, is that for much of the Cold War, this was not only a secret area, but one of the most secretive areas of American national security activity. The very existence of the NRO was not publicly confirmed until 1992. 
Um, the fact that the U.S. did signals intelligence from space was not confirmed until after the Cold War ended. In many ways, the NRO and satellite reconnaissance was even more secretive than nuclear activities during the Cold War. Do we know when the first Soviet imagery satellite was operational? So it was in the early 1960s because the Soviets initially protested satellite overflight or rather satellite reconnaissance overflight. Mm -hmm. But by about 1963, those Soviet protests had subsided largely due to the fact that they were also operating their own program. <laughs> um, and so it wasn't as sophisticated as the American program, but nonetheless was still important to the Soviets. And this is the time frame when information was transmitted down from the satellites in old fashioned ways, we should say, right? It was not yeah. the the, the the rapid connection. I mean, now we're getting images from space telescopes. We get the New Horizons mission, which is out past Pluto, and we're getting... That's not the kind of communication we had back then. Right. So from, let's say, 1960 until 1976, uh, the U.S. for imagery used film return canisters. So basically, the satellite is launched, uh, takes its images, and then once it's run out of film, the film is then returned in canisters over the Pacific Ocean, and specially equipped U.S. Air Force aircraft would then capture those canisters in midair. The film would then be uh, brought back to the continental United States from Hawaii. It would be flown to Rochester, New York, where it was processed, and then it would be sent down to the National Photographic Interpretation Center uh, in Washington, D.C., where imagery analysts would actually turn that into a finished intelligence product. So we're talking um, days, but in many cases, weeks or even months before mm. you actually have a finished intelligence product. Yeah. And then in 1976, we would have the first near real-time satellite uh, that could downlink imagery very shortly after collection. It's amazing to think that for, you know, what, almost 20 years, there are so many things that can go wrong with the technology anyway, but that whole chain of just getting the information to the analysts involves you know, the film working, but it involves the canister working. It involves reentry going as planned. It involves a pilot, what, catching this falling canister with a net? Yeah. Um, and then having a backup surface vessels, I'm assuming, just in case mm -hmm. there was an error so that the bad guys didn't get the film, then transmitting it safely, not exposing the film in any way. Um, a lot of things have to go right at that time frame to get to even get it to the analysts, much less than to interpret the images you're seeing. Right. Yes. Yeah. There were a lot of different places along the way from launch to operation to film return to film processing where a lot of things could have gone wrong. And when we consider the fact that this is the source of the majority of U.S. intelligence on the Soviet Union, a significant premium was placed on ensuring that reconnaissance operations ran smoothly. But there were times when there were technical errors that did affect mm -hmm. uh, the production of imagery intelligence. Now, early on, there weren't that many satellites in orbit. I should say artificial satellites in orbit because right. um, there's one big one up there, right? Um, <laughs> but to the best of my knowledge, there wasn't any attempt, like as soon as the Soviets launched theirs, that the American military planners said, all right, we got to take it out, right? There, there wasn't the right. let's ram it with our satellite or let's use some other kinetic means to take it out. Is, is that right that in the 1960s, at least, that there wasn't a, or I should say the early 1960s, that there wasn't the immediate response of we, we have to have a monopoly on orbital vehicles? Um, 
I think a program quickly developed that we can talk about. But at the beginning, was there any initiative from the president or military planners to say, we were first up with imagery satellites and we're going to prevent the Soviets from keeping one up? Yeah. So in the late 1950s and through the 1960s, there was a bit of tension, especially in the early 1960s, between primarily senior Air Force leaders and elected officials. So President Eisenhower really emphasized this idea that the United States needed to establish an international political framework that was going to be conducive to conducting reconnaissance operations from space without interference. And so he believed that if the U.S., you know, developed expansive space weapons programs that that could provoke the Soviet Union into acting aggressively uh, towards U.S. satellites. The U.S. was the first country in uh, 1959 to test an anti-satellite weapon, but that was not turned into an operational capability. And really, it wasn't until the 1970s, uh, except for one minor detour, uh, that the U.S. really started to develop uh, capabilities that could more precisely target Soviet systems in orbit. And, and because satellite reconnaissance was such an important source of intelligence, uh, U.S. presidents really up until Gerald Ford maintained that it was best to be more restrained out of fear that any kind of provocation um, to the Soviets could interfere with U.S. reconnaissance operations. What was Program 437? So Program 437 really developed out of concern in the early 1960s, that the Soviets could develop uh, what became known as a fractional orbital bombardment system, that they could put nuclear weapons into a partial orbit that could evade U.S. missile defenses and then strike uh, somewhere in the American homeland. So Program 437 was, in effect, a modified missile defense system uh, that would intercept these nuclear weapons before impact. Uh, but because we didn't have technologies in the 1960s that allowed really precise targeting, uh, it would use a nuclear weapon to actually blow up the Soviet nuclear weapon before it came in and impacted. So it was not a really um, precise system. And the U.S. learned through multiple tests of high-altitude nuclear detonations that if you propagate radiation into space, you're going to inadvertently damage your own satellite systems. So the system was deployed in the Pacific, um, but by the late 1960s, especially as U.S. involvement in Vietnam was escalating, the Department of Defense put it in a, a partial operating status, and then it was fully decommissioned by 1975. And clarify for me, was the plan primarily to take out projectiles, including missiles, nuclear weapons fired potentially from satellites, or was it to take out the satellites themselves? So it could conceivably do both. The idea would be to, to actually destroy the target before it would release its munitions. Okay. Um, and we now can see in declassified documents that there were officials, primarily in the Air Force, who said, and... The system could have utility for attacking other kinds of Soviet satellites, but attacking non-nuclear systems was not the primary rationale when, when JFK approved the program. Right. And even though this was not a public program, the Soviets became aware of it. And how did they respond in terms of their own planning and research? Well, we now know from the Soviet archives that there were Soviet engineers who were promoting the idea of anti-satellite weapons really at the very beginning of the Corona program. But we also know that the Soviets used Program 437 as justification for expanding their own ASAT program. Um, now, 
even if the U.S. had not developed Program 437, I'm not at all confident that the Soviets would not have kept up their ASAP program. But nonetheless, internally, it was certainly used as additional fodder for the argument that the Soviets needed their own anti-satellite weapons capability. Right. Now, at this time, and again, my history isn't isn't that good, but we didn't yet have the ABM, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty yet, right? When did that come? In the 70s? So that was 1972. Okay. So there was there was nothing in law preventing the United States and the Soviet Union from developing either land-based or space-based missile defense, was there? So the Outer Space Treaty, mm. um, 1967, did prohibit the deployment of nuclear weapons in space. Mm -hmm. And there was a little bit of a semantical debate about the Soviet fractional orbital bombardment system, about whether or not it was really deploying weapons in space. But the point is that with the Outer Space Treaty, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were, and, and other signatories were agreeing that we're not going to deploy nuclear weapons in space. But what's very important to stress is that the uh, treaty did not prohibit the deployment of non-nuclear weapons right. in space or the deployment of weapons on Earth that could be used to destroy satellites in space. So technically at this time, uh, put yourself back in the mind of the, the military planners in the late 60s, early 70s. You're thinking there could be a scenario in which we have to take out some Soviet satellites. Technically at that point, was it easier to try to take them down from a land-based system, which obviously we'd done a lot more testing and firing, or was it easier to take a chance with a space-based system that had uh, perhaps less testing and less confidence, but obviously you have proximity in that case? You know, there's, there's positives and negatives from a technical standpoint for both land-based and space-based uh, systems. And I'll also say that even the definition of space base can become a, a bit of a debate in and of itself. The Soviets would ultimately develop a system that would basically be fired into space, would rendezvous close to its target, and then uh, destroy it. But it really boils down to what are the specific military objectives that you want to have uh, or that you, um, that you need to complete. But what I'll say is that until technologies evolved to the point uh, that you had kinetic kill where you could basically take a missile and fire it into space and, and blow up a satellite with it until you had technologies that enabled you to do that. Um, the nuclear tip systems, which were the primary uh, capabilities in the 1960s, just weren't really viable for any kind of precise targeting of space systems. So then we do get the uh, ABM, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, and the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty was somewhere mm -hmm. in that same time frame. How, how did they affect what the United States uh, legally was able to do, but also in terms of just the practical research that, that followed that, did it really inhibit the operational thinking about satellites and anti-satellite weapons? Well, I think that something that's perhaps not well known about the strategic arms limitation talks is you have these two treaties signed in 1972, the interim agreement, which freezes nuclear forces of certain kinds at specific levels in the U.S. and the Soviet Union, the ABM treaty. But uh, four years prior to that, the CIA was warning the White House that the Soviet Union actually was developing an anti-satellite weapon that could target intelligence systems in mm. low Earth orbit. And so the Nixon administration, as these negotiations with the Soviets are going on um, on, on uh, arms control, is contemplating, well, what should we do about this anti-satellite weapons problem? And so because the U.S. and the Soviet Union agreed 
uh, to use what was referred to as national technical means of verification to verify the SALT agreements. Um, and national technical means would include satellites. The Nixon administration basically said, well, uh, we probably don't want to develop an anti-satellite weapon. The Soviets have stopped testing there. So this issue will hopefully just in effect go away. And the U.S. government internally decided not to develop um, an anti-satellite weapons uh, system at that time, or rather the Nixon administration said, um, we're not going to do this. So if you step back and if you look at newspaper reports mm. at the time, um, even though the NRO is not acknowledged, journalists were saying it's satellites in space that are keeping watch over the superpowers and are really the foundation for policing these agreements. Mm -hmm. And so that contributes to the idea that satellites are stabilizing right. and that anti-satellite weapons would really potentially undermine strategic stability. That is a, a different narrative framing, isn't it? Right. If you, if you think of satellites as a, a threat, as they're always above us, they could do things to us. That, that puts you in one frame of mind. But the other frame of mind is, no, they're keeping an eye on the other side so that strategic surprise is, is minimized. They are a good thing. This, these are the guardians, if you will. This is a, this is a positive development. Right. And um, I would say that in the early 1970s, you know, I, I am a little bit worried about using the word consensus, but certainly in the White House, State Department, and certainly even um, in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, mm -hmm. definitely at the NRO, a lot of people had the idea that, you know, it's best just to be restrained um, in the United States and to not take action that's going to provoke the Soviet Union, um, because now we do have a situation which we, in effect, recognize the legitimacy of satellite reconnaissance. We in the United States, the Soviets as well, we depend on these satellites. So it's best if we have this uh, the situation of what was referred to at the time of assured surveillance, um, that we have the ability to maintain watch and that we don't want to develop capabilities uh, to interfere. Um, but that situation would, would radically change by the end of the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where we last left our heroes, uh, yes. <laughs> we okay. had a, a situation, the Nixon administration, where you have treaties, you feel like the, the Soviets aren't, aren't testing. We're not going to do anything right now. So, you know, you could imagine decades of peace and bliss, but that's not what happened. Is it, it how right. many years was it before somebody decided they had to test again? So, yeah, if we look at these treaties that are signed in 1972, by the end of 1975, um, Gerald Ford, of course, is now president. The arms control negotiations have basically hit a snag. They're not really moving forward. So the Soviets resume anti-satellite weapons testing by December of 1975, and they actually enter into a more intensive phase of testing. So Gerald Ford would stand up a committee uh, to look at this issue under a guy named Solomon Buxbaum, who had been a presidential science advisor. And uh, George H.W. Bush, when he's director of central intelligence, he really underscores that the Soviet anti-satellite weapons issue is a really pressing national security concern mm -hmm. and that the Ford administration really needed to determine what is going to be the way forward on this issue. But it can't be ignored at this point. It's not going to go away. And this is politically at the same time in uh, late 75, but especially in 1976, Ronald Reagan is mounting a primary challenge against Gerald Ford. And one of the things he's railing against is these treaties with the Soviets and the, the whole idea of detente and we should be doing more. And we know in his presidency, as I'm sure we'll get to, that he was a big fan of defense systems. We, we need yeah. not to be held hostage by the threat of nuclear annihilation. But 
even back then, even in the mid 70s, he was already thinking about things like missile defense. So this is in the context of Ford publicly looking like he was maintaining detente. But I think by the end of his administration, he was basically saying we need to have an anti-satellite weapons program. Right. So basically what happens is um, you do have these public challenges from Reagan. There was something um, called the, uh, the Team B Competitive Analytical um, Project. So these outside um, experts who come in and look at CIA analysis, one of the things they specifically highlighted is that the Soviet ASAT threat out of many other threats that were examined was underestimated. Um, and so you have this panel within the Ford administration um, that's being run by Solomon Buxbaum. And as it's looking at the Soviet ASAT issue, uh, what it determines is that the military and intelligence use of space is going to radically change in the coming years. And that because of changes in technology, both the Soviet Union and the United States are going to increasingly use satellites to directly support military forces. So if we remember that 1976 is when the first NRO satellite that can downlink images in real time is going to be launched. The Soviets already have radar satellites that can track naval vessels in real time mm -hmm. and potentially provide targeting information to deploy naval forces. So because of these developments, yeah. the Booksbomb panel says that the U.S. is going to need the ability to deny the Soviet Union access to space in wartime. And in his final 48 hours in office, Gerald Ford would sign a national security directive to create a new ASAT program. So that's a real, that's a real shift in a short presidency. I mean, yeah. he wasn't in office that long, but there was enough of a change that, that he decided to do it. But of course, a new president is coming in. How did, right. how did Jimmy Carter pick up on that and handle things in the satellite realm for the next four years? Yeah. So when Jimmy Carter comes into office, he very quickly puts this national security order in abeyance and says, well, let's let's hold off on anti-satellite weapons development because Carter wants to reinvigorate the strategic arms limitation talks. He wants a new treaty. And Carter knows that satellites are going to be the primary means of verifying that treaty. And so what Carter is worried about is there's now growing public reports about Soviet anti-satellite weapons development and um, potential U.S. anti-satellite weapons development. So there was headlines about killer satellites, you know, there's going to be war in space, and that this is going to be really bad for strategic stability. So as a part of the SALT dialogue with the Soviets, Carter informs the Soviets that we need to have a limit on anti-satellite weapons as a part of this framework. And he specifically says that that's going to be important to get the treaty ratified by the Senate, because there's going to potentially be a perception that if we're dependent on satellites and we're developing weapons to destroy them, that this is going to be a real problem. And so he's really worried about what the perception of the general public is going to be, but specifically uh, members of Congress who are going to have to make decisions about whether or not to ratify SALT. So it seems to me that we have a, th a kind of a pattern here, and it's not exactly the same, but uh, several presidents now you've described have come into office for different reasons, have basically, I don't know, backed off a bit from aggressively pursuing something involving anti-satellite weapons or testing, but then ending up getting there, right? So certainly Ford ends up getting there by the end. Um, did did What did Carter do that during his administration that shifted his tone from working on the negotiations to actually setting up what would become even more activity in the 80s. 
Yeah, so the U.S. and the Soviet Union did engage in anti-satellite weapons limitation talks in 1978 and 1979. And basically, the two groups of negotiators could not even agree on a precise definition of what is a space weapon, what is an anti-satellite, um, because you could have a modified missile defense capability, for example, that could be used in that capacity. Um, the Soviets said that the American space shuttle should be um, put in that category because it was highly maneuverable, could deploy weapons out of the payload bay. So uh, that's one issue. Another issue is that Carter um, is the first president to publicly confirm in 1978 that the U.S. does photo reconnaissance from space and he declassifies that because he's trying to build greater confidence in the U.S. government's ability to verify assault to agreement. But because of all this public hyperbole about Soviet killer satellites, uh, it actually then generates even more anxiety about this idea that we're heavily dependent on these satellites and the Soviets are developing weapons to destroy them. So Carter decides to approve the Department of Defense moving forward with an anti-satellite weapons program to place pressure on the Soviets um, to make concessions. Um, but ultimately, uh, the US and the Soviet Union just could not really agree on what precisely should be limited. The Soviets raised the issue of electronic warfare. So, you know, jamming satellites, for example, and the US didn't really want to include that in limits. And then once the Soviets invade Afghanistan in 1979, that just really uh, you know, brings the talks more or less to a halt and, uh, and is going to propel this issue into the Reagan administration. Do you think, and, and I hate asking historians counterfactuals because most historians uh, hate them for various reasons, but do you think if Carter would have won the election in 1980, uh, do you think that because of the invasion of Afghanistan, because of his experience with negotiating with the Soviets uh, to no major benefit, do you think that he would have been pursuing um, and been more convinced of the military utility of anti-satellite weapons had he had a second term? So there's really no strong evidence that he was convinced of the military utility. If you look at space policy directives that he signed, but even if the Soviets had not invaded Afghanistan, um, let's say, and if Carter had been reelected, I'm not at all convinced that there would have been an agreement because the Soviets really had no incentive at the time for limits. The Soviets recognized that the United States was far more dependent on satellites than they were. Um, they already had an operational anti-satellite weapon. The Soviets even said, well, you guys don't even have a capability. So, you know, why, why would we limit ours when we don't really have something equitable to trade? So um, I it's, of course, impossible to know, but I'm not at all convinced or even certain, or, or, or rather, um, I'm not confident that Carter would have been able to actually achieve an anti-satellite weapons limit if he wanted to, if he had moved into a second term, and if uh, relations between Moscow and Washington were not deteriorating to the levels that they were in the late 70s. So be before we get to Reagan, who I think that's where for the general public, that's where the story of uh, satellites and space weapons really begins in the yeah. the public imagination. But you've just obviously showed us there's a whole lot of backstory there. But there's something I don't want to miss, which is now uh, we are very concerned with issues of um, space debris in general, but space mm -hmm. debris caused by doing any testing in space of either weapons or other kinetic options. So Talk to me up to this point, kind of the from the imagining of satellites in the 50s mm -hmm. 
to the creation of them, to the uh, increasing frequency of them, and all of this discussion about weaponry, what up until the 1980s was the history of actual satellite on satellite activity and the space debris that came from them? Yeah, so no, it's it's a really uh, interesting question. And, and the answer is that there wasn't really much consciousness at the time about the environmental effects of doing these kinds of tests. So the Soviet Union um, and the United States would test multiple you know, um, kinds of weapons capabilities outside Earth's atmosphere during the Cold War, and debris was generated. But it's not until the 1980s, and really more towards the late 1980s, that you start to see more awareness about the fact that this debris could stay in orbit for a long time. It could impede the operation of all kinds of satellites, civil um, as well as national security. And it's, it's certainly not until after the Cold War that this really becomes a much more significant policy issue. So other than uh, radiation propagating into space and considering what the consequences of that could be for satellite operations, long-lived debris is not really a part of the senior level space policy or more broadly national security policy discussions going on at this time. Do you think there was a general belief to the extent people did believe anything that anything would just burn up in in the atmosphere that things would not retain in orbit? So there was certainly awareness that debris could stay in orbit and um, in the 1980s when the US would do the one and only debris producing test of an anti-satellite weapon um, that, that the Reagan administration moved forward with, there was actually recognition that, well, maybe we should actually do this at a slightly lower altitude so that the debris doesn't stay in orbit for a long time. So there is awareness of it, but I think that we have to remember that in the 1970s, certainly, and even in the 1980s, we don't have this explosion yet of the commercial space market. So right. yes, there's a lot of satellites, but relative today, a lot fewer <laughs> satellites. Yeah. Right. And so there just really isn't a lot of thought about, well, hey, this could be really bad you know, if we have a lot of debris um, over a long period of time. Okay. Back to, back to policy. And then I think as yeah. we move forward into the last few decades, we'll definitely go back into uh, testing in space and space debris. But in the Reagan administration, um, we didn't know until recently, if I understand this right, because of declassification. Of course, everybody knows the Reagan administration was emphasizing the, the military value of potential anti-satellite weapons. But in fact, in, the, in his first term near the end, the president was actually considering something that would go against that, wasn't he? Yeah. So this um, came out just very, very recently um, in, in a set of documents released in 2021. And uh, there's this meeting in the White House in December 1984 and talking about arms control negotiations. And Reagan's advisors are saying, you know, the Soviets are really worried now about space weaponry. And Reagan wants to pursue missile defense, including space-based missile defense. And Reagan says, well, why can't we have a treaty limiting offensive space weapons and allowing defensive space weapons? And his advisors try to explain to him that there really isn't a clear distinction between those two things. That if you're going to put interceptors in space to destroy ballistic missiles, you could also use those interceptors to offensively destroy satellites. But Reagan really holds on to this idea um, through the remainder of his presidency that you can make a distinction between these two things. Um, and that in and of itself would become a serious problem and an impediment at times in the arms control negotiations between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Right. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. 
and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So obviously the SDI or Strategic Defense Initiative becomes the the first big public awareness of this actually taking over the covers of time and newsweek, the, the big news publications at the time. Um, but there are a lot of misunderstandings about what SDI was and what it wasn't. Can you describe based on the full picture that we, we now have of what was being proposed, what was being developed? Um, what was this SDI and, and what did it not entail? Yeah. So I think that one of the biggest points of confusion certainly present in the 1980s and is still an issue today, is that the Strategic Defense Initiative was not a thing. It was an umbrella for all these different research efforts into different technologies that could be used for missile defense and in some cases, anti-satellite weapons. It wasn't until the late 1980s that a particular strategic defense concept had emerged that would then be downsized in the 1990s um, and, and portions of it would actually be deployed and are deployed today the Strategic Defense Initiative organization that managed SDI ultimately became the Missile Defense Agency that's still around today. But sometimes SDI is described as a space laser program, for example. But if you actually look at the budgetary breakdown of the roughly $40 billion that was spent on the program by about 1991, things like lasers or even kinetic kill systems were um, really a, a minority of the budget. A lot of it was focused on advanced command and control, sensors in space for tracking all kinds of threats. So um, the idea that you know SDI was primarily this futuristic Buck Rogers program that's going to deploy lasers in space, that was really a very small component of it. Um, but it was the component that I would say received the most attention at the time. I have to say that I... I don't know that in the 1980s, obviously for intelligence collection of various means, um, satellites, incredibly important, right? From the 60s, 70s, 80s, definitely. But in terms of an actual war, in terms of actual ground conflict, I'm not sure anybody was aware of just how crucial satellites were and how much yeah. they were a potential vulnerability for the U.S. military uh, until the first Gulf War of 19. 
91, when, when so much happened that, that depended on the space-based assets. Um, yeah. Talk through that a little bit and how at that point you have some almost competing dynamics, right? You have the end of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, but then you have an actual no kidding war in the Middle East that shows that satellites really matter, which jumbles up the clarity such that there was in the preceding decades about how we defined satellites and what box we put them in when we were doing planning. Yeah. So I think that, you know, and you alluded to this classification was really the big issue that there just really wasn't awareness of these kinds of capabilities outside very small circle of experts in the U S government. So the first Gulf War was really the coming to fruition of what was envisioned in that report that was produced for Gerald Ford in 1976, that satellites are going to be just really, really critical for modern war fighting. So in the first Gulf War, you see things like imagery being you know, downlinked and used by military forces. Commercial imagery is, is used uh, for the first time in, in conflict in the first Gulf War. Um, GPS is introduced for precision guided munitions. So the list goes on and on. Um, the chief of staff of the Air Force at the time, General Merrill McPeak, would describe the first Gulf War as the first space war because space systems were, were so fully integrated into combat operations. Um, and so there were elements in the U.S. Air Force uh, and, and within the Department of Defense more broadly that said, look, you know, this really shows that we need to have the ability, even though the Soviet Union is gone, we need to have the ability in the United States to control access to space. And that rogue state actors over time could potentially develop capabilities to interfere with satellites. Someone even said, well, what if Saddam Hussein had had anti-satellite weapons? Now we might say, okay, that's a little bit fantastical. But these ideas were being circulated. And there was also anticipation that in a decade or more, there's going to be another near-peer threat yeah. um, to the United States and that the U.S. would need the ability to offensively control access to space if necessary. It is interesting to think how different any conflict uh, since then could have been, whether it's the Gulf War, whether it's the NATO intervention in um, Bosnia and, and Serbia yeah. and Kosovo, uh, whether it, if, if in fact those countries had even a rudimentary anti-satellite capability, not necessarily a game changer, but potentially one. Right. So as I recall, we talked about the ABM earlier. Didn't George W. Bush pull out of that treaty in the early in his administration? Yeah, so in 2002, the United States withdrew from the ABM Treaty. And the Russians, Vladimir Putin in particular, they weren't happy about this, but at the time it wasn't really the public issue in US-Russian relations that it would soon become. And the Bush administration really tried to emphasize to the Russians, later to the Chinese, that this is, this is aimed at so-called rogue states. So Iran, mm -hmm. North Korea, and Bush really believed that the U.S. needed more expansive missile defense. Yeah. When he appointed Rumsfeld as the Secretary of Defense, it was well known that Rumsfeld was a promoter of space-based BMD as well as anti-satellite weapons. And so there was some anticipation uh, before the U.S. gets enmeshed in the global war on terror that these kinds of capabilities are going to be more prominent. Uh, something that maybe few people remember is a concept called rods from God, that you could have these tungsten rods deployed yeah. from space. Um, and so Rumsfeld was somewhat interested in those kinds of concepts. So the pullout of the ABM treaty was seen by some commentators at the time as really opening the floodgates potentially for much more expansive development of some of the capabilities that you know uh, people like Ronald Reagan had envisioned in the 1980s. And from what you've been able to research, was it was it truly or was it just rhetoric that 
Bush and his senior advisors were saying to Russia and presumably China, don't worry, you know, this this isn't about you. Um, we're, we're, we're actually comfortable with each other on this level. It really is about those folks in in Pyongyang and Tehran that we're worried about. Do you think that was that was a true belief and they expressed that to those leaders or just the public face for what they were going to do? I think that the rationale for the U.S. withdrawal from the AVM Treaty, if we're talking about U.S. presidential policy, was specifically focused on Iran and North Korea. I think that you could certainly then and today find ballistic missile defense promoters that said, yes, this is good, but we should be aiming for a much larger missile defense architecture that could potentially be able to eliminate just about any kind of missile threat. But I think for Bush specifically, he was really focused on Iran and North Korea. And I think that uh, elements in his administration didn't fully consider and certainly didn't anticipate how much of a problem this would become in U.S.-Russian relations in the, in the near future. And by this time, or w- within a few years after then, you're starting to get more countries putting more systems into space. It's it's no longer a U.S.-Soviet game. Um, obviously, you've got China. India's getting in the game. You've got other European countries working there. Um, therefore, there was more attention to it when, in in my recollection, it was the second George W. Bush term, when suddenly the regular news was reporting that there was a Chinese weapons test that actually produced a significant amount of space debris. And this is where I first remember hearing about space debris being talked about publicly as a major issue for what became the communication satellites and everything else that were now in orbit. So talk through that and correct me on the details there if I got them wrong, but sometime I think it was in the late uh, Bush administration, mm-hmm. this Chinese test, how much of a seminal event was that? Yeah. And so it's, it's kind of interesting because that test that would happen, it was January 11th of 2007. And why I remember that date specifically is because it was six years to the day of when Donald Rumsfeld Space Commission report released uh, this very long document warning of a space Pearl Harbor. So six years later to the day, the Chinese would test an anti-satellite weapon. And um, so the Chinese blew up one of their own um, defunct satellites in low Earth orbit and produced a lot of debris in the process. Some of that debris is still in orbit today. Uh, Multiple satellites have had to do maneuvers to avoid that debris. And... um, it, it did raise concern um, at U.S. Strategic Command at the time and the U.S. government more broadly. Many countries came out and condemned it. Um, but it was really underscoring that doing these kinds of tests in space, um, you know, even if you're just testing the capability, you can produce debris that's going to be an immediate hazard and a long-term hazard uh, to, to the safe operation of satellites for civil, national security, and, and commercial purposes. Mm-hmm. So I know what the general American reaction was to that, uh, which was expressions of, you know, horror and condemnation of China, how could you do this? Which is, I mean, I I guess, genuine, although there's a history, both the Soviets and the United States had had practiced something like this in the past, even though it came out slightly differently. Um, But it sure seemed like a game changer, didn't it? So I, I think that, you know, if, if you look at statements that were made at the time, um, officials from U.S. Strategic Command publicly said, you know, this isn't really a watershed moment. I think that what the event showed is that U.S. space capabilities were indeed vulnerable. And that was something that had been recognized for a long time. 
And China was demonstrating that it took counter space capabilities very seriously because it had observed just how important space capabilities were for modern combat power in the US in the first Gulf War, as well as during the invasion of Iraq in 2003. So I think that publicly, uh, the US was not quite as assertive as it some might have anticipated. But I think internal to the US government, there were certainly elements who said, yeah, you know, this really underscores the fact that we do need to be concerned about the vulnerability of our overhead systems. And this is probably going to become a bigger issue um, in the coming time. Yeah. How, how long was it until other countries followed and did more testing in space of, of shooting down presumably older satellites kind of as target practice? Yeah. So, you know, the Chinese have not done another debris producing ASAT test since that time. But in 2019, India would demonstrate the capability to do that. The Indians also, uh, in part, uh, uh, were reacting to the Chinese ASAT capability. Um, that wasn't the full rationale, but certainly that was a part of it. Uh, Russia did a debris producing test in 2021 that would cause uh astronauts and cosmonauts on the International Space Station to have to shelter in place. And there was concern about debris hazards. Um, they did it at a, a fairly high altitude. Um, and so that debris could remain in orbit for a significant period of time. And, uh, and, and even though those are the only countries that are in the, the ASAT club alongside the United States, um, there are a lot more countries out there that have advanced missile defense capabilities, for example, Israel, that could repurpose those systems if they chose to and use them in an ASAT capacity. So bring us up to the current day on policy um, from the Bush administration. Go through um, Obama, Trump, and what we've what we've seen in the first couple of years of the Biden administration in terms of overall policy towards satellite weapons. Yeah. So when you get to the Obama administration, um, the Obama administration would declare that space is um, congested, contested, um, and competitive. And uh, there was this growing public recognition, you know, that that space could become a domain um, of potential contention and conflict. Uh, but there was still more focus on the global war on terror. And so if we look at resource allocation, more resources or substantially more resources are not really being um, put on, uh, put into the space category. When Donald Trump comes into office, um, space becomes a much more prominent outward facing aspect of his defense policy. And so he stands up the U.S. Space Force. And when he stands up the Space Force, there was a lot of hyperbole at the time that, oh, this is a huge game changer. In reality, the Department of Defense took what was Air Force Space Command and basically put it into its own service. Now elements from other military services that were doing space operations have moved to the Space Force, but the NRO is still a separate organization. The Missile Defense Agency is still separate. So institutionally, a lot really didn't change. Um, but Trump also declared space to be a warfighting domain, um, which the U.S. had never done that before, even though there was recognition that conflict could extend into space. And let me ask you there, what difference does that make, right? Because if it had already been almost tacitly acknowledged, what does the public acknowledgement of it as a warfighting domain actually mean? Well, I think that even though internal to the U.S. government, going back to the 1970s, we find in policy documents recognition of the reality that conflict could and might even likely extend into space uh, if, it's, if it's between the superpowers. But publicly, the U.S. government always downplayed that. 
And, and so the public narrative still kind of focused on this, this lofty vision of space that it's somehow untouched by the horrors of war. And so really the most significant aspect of calling space a warfighting domain was more directly signaling to the public that the U.S. government sees space as a domain of conflict, um, or rather it will become a domain of conflict if, if there's a larger clash between the U.S. and a, a near peer. Um, so I think really what it did is it, without much warning, um, was a significant intervention in the public dialogue about what is the nature of space activities, how is space used by the U.S. government and other governments to promote their national security interests. What about the creation of the Space Force itself, right? We, we know the Space Force is not a team of um, military personnel that are deployed in space, sitting there with with weapons ready to shoot. So what did the creation of the Space Force do that was not happening within primarily the Air Force before then? And, and what did it not do to change things? Yeah, one of the rationales for creating the Space Force was that the Air Force did not treat space the same way that it treated, for example, air operations. That if you looked at generals in the Air Force, almost all of them uh, were pilots and that space personnel were not promoted to the same um, at, at the same uh, speed and in the same numbers or anything close to the same numbers. So the idea was that space had been neglected, and by creating the space force, we're now going to develop a cadre of senior level um, space savvy generals who are going to be able to advocate on behalf of, of of space operators and promote the space needs of the Department of Defense. So, like I said, institutionally, if we look at capabilities that existed in 2017 versus today, not substantial difference. Um, but if we look at advocacy for space, it's much more public and it's at a much higher level that now you have, for example, the director of national intelligence um, regularly talking about the importance of space and how space could be contested. And so I think that Space Force has been a, a much more um, prominent symbol of the fact that we have this space security dilemma, even if in terms of capabilities, we don't actually have substantial changes today from the situation, let's say five or 10 years ago. Do I recall recently seeing uh, some senior DOD officials um, in the Biden administration you know, calling for an end to anti-satellite weapons tests that would cause any debris at all? Yeah. So, uh, Earlier this year, Vice President Kamala Harris, she announced this U.S. commitment to um, a moratorium on uh, what would be debris producing direct descent anti-satellite missile testing. If you actually look at the wording, it's, it's very, very, very specific. And what I would say about that is it's, it's an attempt to promote this idea uh, that doing debris producing anti-satellite weapons tests puts debris in orbit that is a hazard to all space operators. But I will also say that from a U.S. policy standpoint, it was really just underscoring what was already tacit U.S. policy. So in 2008, the U.S. destroyed a, a malfunctioning U.S. satellite at a very low altitude right before reentry, so it didn't create a lot of debris. And the U.S. government would not consider that kind of activity as falling under this moratorium. Um, so the U.S. has not done a dedicated debris-producing anti-satellite weapons test since 1985. And so really from U.S. policy, uh, U.S. behavioral standpoint, this isn't really a market change, but it has led to other countries 
saying, yes, this is something that we also are committing to, but Russia and China have not in any way, shape or form signaled an interest in, um, in signing on informally or formally. Do you, do you worry about that? I mean, do you think that we've crossed some threshold where with, as you mentioned, the, the more advanced missile capabilities with the proliferation of space launch capability um, or satellite development capability um, and the greater the greater number of countries that have strong interests in space now, uh, even if it's only due to communication satellites, uh, but in some cases, military applications as well. Do, do you think that we've, we've crossed that line that there, there are going to be more countries in the coming decade that will be testing absent some kind of a ban, which is probably unrealistic at this time, that it's only a matter of time before you see other countries, perhaps including Israel, you mentioned, and others who actually feel the need to do a, a no kidding test in space. I think it's hard to assess whether or not other countries would do debris producing tests because it's it's well established now that there's going to be a very negative international reaction. And it's also well established that that's, that's really counter to your own interests in space that you could potentially impede your own operations. That being said, I think that it is possible and perhaps even likely that more countries will develop the means uh, to do those tests because as space becomes more fully integrated, into the military capabilities of countries around the world, then it's only natural that countries would also develop the means to deny and degrade the use of those capabilities in times of heightened tension and, and certainly in wartime. There's a real dilemma here, uh, perhaps similar to dilemmas with nuclear testing and uh, other, other testing over the years in different technologies that the testing itself at some level it doesn't remove the taboo on use, but it does make it, in a sense, more practical. But on the other hand, without testing, if you don't know what your system can do, uh, it, if you get into a situation where you do use it, you're, you're unlikely to know the effects and you, you might be more likely to use it thinking it might not work, right? So you got this weird issue of testing, which it's good to have some kind of testing to increase confidence and therefore some sense of strategic stability. But obviously, we, we don't want to have a bunch of countries testing anti-satellite weapons and creating uh, enduring debris fields, given the huge number of uh, platforms that are now in space. Yeah. So I think that you know there's a couple of different issues at play when, when countries do debris producing tests. On the one hand, there is this practical military R&D need to determine, is the thing going to work if we need it to? But also, there's a signaling aspect to it. That you know, if you do a non-debris-producing um, test, if you don't blow something up, it's not going to get as much attention. So you know, when if India, for example, likely did multiple tests short of destroying an object prior to actually carrying out that operation in 2019, and it just doesn't really get any attention. But when you actually blow up a satellite, you know, people around the world say, "Wow, that you know, that's that sounds like a really advanced capability." India is really emerging now as a much more prominent player in the space domain and advanced military technologies, we also have to remember that it can be easier to shoot down your own satellite than someone else's because you can have a cooperative target in space. And so some of these technical nuances are lost in the, in the public reporting, but from a signaling standpoint, it, it seems like you're demonstrating that you really have advanced technological capabilities that have to be taken very seriously. Right. Well, let's shift to fictional portrayals of, of 
and I don't want to do all of space battles, right? Uh, and get into, um, you know, theoretical ships operating between planets or anything, but just talking about satellite warfare, the, the first one in my memory was actually, I think the very first James Bond movie I saw, not in the theater, but on, must've been on television. Um, you only live twice from the late sixties. Cause I think that's the one, if I have it right, I'll be embarrassed if I don't, but that's the one where it opens with one satellite, essentially kidnapping another satellite. Now, that's not the same as shooting one down, whether from land or from space. But by by 19, what was that, 67 or so, um, when that movie came out, the idea was already there that we could have military activity or bad actor activity in space, basically going after satellites. Um, but I don't think it involved anti-satellite weaponry as such. I think that I think you're kind of getting up to um, Moonraker, another Bond mm-hmm. movie in the mid '70s, before you're getting to actually much more of, okay, what's going to happen in space from space, things like that. Um, how do you think those early portrayals of satellites came across? Did they reflect some sense of reality, or were they pure fantasy? Well, I mean, I think that there was certainly a, a bit of a fantastical element, but. If we, you know, consider some statements that were being made by Air Force officials, for example, in the, the late 1950s, 1960s, they were describing some capabilities that were not too dissimilar. So they were talking about capabilities that could go up into space and rendezvous with a space object and inspect it, potentially destroy it. Um, when concepts about the shuttle were first emerging, there was talk of, well, hey, you could potentially, you could have a grappling arm and you could you could bring a satellite sure. and you know bring it down from orbit or you can move its orbit. Mm-hmm. So um, it was portrayed obviously as a lot more feasible perhaps and worked out than was the case in reality at that time. But the ideas that were presented in movies like that and certainly um, uh, later uh, Bond films were a reflection to some degree of real anxieties and ideas that were circling in, in national security uh, arenas. Moonraker itself, um, not considered the best Bond movie. I'll um, <laughs> do that as an understatement, but certainly one of the most ambitious. Uh, and I remember hearing it cost a whole lot more than, than its predecessors did. Um, it really was, we, we had space fantasy right by Ben, we'd, we'd had Star Trek on TV for all, you know, Star Wars was coming out around the same time. But in terms of one that tried to, if not realistically portray um, what could be happening in space, one that at least tried to make it plausible enough. Um, what do you what do you think of it? I mean, certainly probably at the time, it felt differently than it does some 40 plus years later. But what do you think about when you reflect back on Moonraker? So I I talk about Moonraker in my course on space policy history. And the reason why is even though there are aspects of the film that are just not realistic, um, if we look at, you know, the kind of, you know, human operations that are going on in space, I think it was a reflection of the fact that there was growing anxiety at the time that over time, something akin to this could become a reality. And I don't think it's at all a coincidence. Um, I know it's not a coincidence that Moonraker appears around the same time that there are all of these public reports about Soviet killer satellites. Um, the 
soon after Moonraker would come out, there was a cover of Der Spiegel where you have Soviet shuttles and American shuttles, you know, firing lasers at each other. And even though that looks fantastical, if you actually read the article, there is this real anxiety that what you're seeing in movies like Moonraker um, in some way or shape or form could become a reality in the coming time over the next decade or, or perhaps a little more. And there could be some, I don't, maybe forgiveness is the wrong word, but some understanding of, okay, height of the Cold War, some public information is coming out about uh, space weapons. So 1970s, 1980s, yeah, we, we kind of get that there will be some Moonraker fictionalization put on screen. But, but then we go to right after, I think it was the first Bond movie after mm-hmm. the Cold War was ending, which was Goldeneye, which had a significant yeah. space satellite uh, role in it. So describe that a little bit for people who haven't seen it and, and then describe how you think it fit with the times the same way you just described how Moonraker fit with the times. Yeah. So with Goldeneye, you have this idea of, you know, this, this doomsday, you know, basically space laser weapon. And I think in many ways it, it grows out of, you know, perhaps the most alarmist and also most futuristic characterizations of some of the research that was going on under SDI but I think that what GoldenEye does is it carries forward this narrative that we can find earlier in the Cold War that if you control space, then you can control the Earth. And so it, you know, space is this decisive high ground, um, which I think is, is really um, a, a, a significant overstatement of reality. But nonetheless, I think that movies uh, like GoldenEye are a reflection of some aspects of that anxiety. And I think that both consciously and unconsciously, it still informs the way, um, especially people in the general public think about the role of space weaponry and national security affairs. But I think that GoldenEye in many ways is a reflection of that really serious anxiety that's emerging, especially in the Soviet Union, but also in other parts of the world in the mid to late 1980s, that space uh, could very well become a, a domain of, of conflict and in seeing that in more realistic terms, that this isn't just something, you know, in, in a Buck Rogers um, uh, kind of outlet, but this is something that could indeed really happen um, in the near future. That's such an interesting point, Aaron, that yes, you know, the fiction, of course, is a, is a reflection of it, its times, but reality picks up on the fiction. And given the great popularity of the Bond franchise internationally, you know, how many people who either were in government or would end up rising into positions of military and political leadership around the world in places like China and India and Israel, um, did that influence people where they said, wow, you know, fun, fun movie, great, great seeing, um, great, great seeing Bond do these things. But oh, we have to prepare for this, right? This is the future because it it yeah. looks truthy. If not <laughs> the truth, it looks like it has some truthiness to it. So did this kind of influence some countries to think, oh, we need to be prepared for the kind of thing we're seeing in the movie? Well, I think that what it does is it gives people a certain framework for thinking about space security. So I think that space, perhaps more so than other domains of national security activity, is really distant, not only in a physical sense, but it just seems really arcane. It seems really complicated. It seems really technical. So that I think that for non-specialists, you know, people who are not engineers, people who are not scientists, people who are not really thinking about uh, things like national security activities in space, 
movies from Moonraker to Goldeneye to even Star Wars, on some level, it gives them just a general framework for thinking about what does a security dilemma in space look like? What might a conflict in space look like in the near term and the long term? And even General John Hyten, when he was commander of U.S. Strategic Command, he said, you know, Star Wars like battles in space, uh, that's not what it looks like today, but there could be some elements of that uh, in, the, in the very distant future. And so you sometimes do see, you know, uniform military leaders or, or national security officials leaning on some of these pop culture references to give people some way of, you know, how do you conceptualize these kinds of very complicated activities? It's a bit surprising given the... Um the way that the Star Wars franchise has influenced so much thinking about uh, space and space exploration, along with Star Trek, of course, um, how little role there is of satellites in a terrestrial context. Um, obviously not Earth, because it's not in that universe, but any terrestrial context, because, you know, the technology as portrayed in the movies is you can get, if not anywhere in the galaxy, you can get pretty far pretty mm -hmm. fast. So you want to go see what's happening on planet X, you hop in your ship, you hyperspace, you're there, right? So the idea of having some kind of persistent surveillance or communications technology through satellites, and therefore the need to have anti-satellite weapons doesn't come up nearly as much as you might think in the Star Wars franchise. Yeah, no, I, I do think that that's true. You know, Star Wars comes out, you know, short around the same time that there is this growing awareness about anti-satellite weapons development. But I think that Star Wars, the, the franchise's really big significance from a political standpoint is it really influences the way that many people think, but also talk about Reagan's SDI, which is, of course, where the, the Star Wars moniker sure, comes from. Sure. Um, and so and when you when you look at some of the debates, even in, in declassified National Security Council meeting minutes, you, you see people really struggling with, well, how do we actually conceptualize this stuff? And so, again, consciously and unconsciously, you see people leaning on depictions of space conflict in outlets like Star Wars really shaping the way they think about these issues. The other thing that comes to mind uh, during this conversation, uh, which, which touches on space debris, is the movie Gravity, which was probably, God, we got to be getting close to 10 years ago now that that came out. And in, in my recollection, again, probably erringly, um, I think it was the Russians who, who either shot down, you know, shot one of their own satellites or did something else. And it produced a, a cascade of debris that led to the central plot in the movie. Um, how realistic is a scenario like that, where a single test, whether it goes wrong or whether it goes according to plan, but that some of the debris from that could actually shatter and cause debris in another system, which then hits another system. And before you know it, you do have this, this cascading loop that creates a challenge that gets in the way of what you described earlier, which is, oh, there's some known debris out there. And if need be, any particular platform can shift its orbit slightly to avoid a significant piece of debris. But once you get past a certain point, you may not be able to maneuver around it if it's a, a cloud of a certain size or it creates other clouds. Talk through that when it comes to space debris. How, how worried should we be that some test can create a situation like we saw in that movie? Yeah, so there, there was concerns about this even going back to before the, the Cold War and concerns not, again, at that senior policy level, but there was something called the Kessler syndrome that's still discussed to this day that basically you, you produce so much debris 
that low Earth orbit uh, becomes inhospitable for satellite operations. The idea that one test, for example, could lead to this really significant cascade, that's um, certainly a little bit more than fantastical. But I think that what that movie did is it, again, even if it's significantly amplifying the problem, it really raises awareness about this issue. I mean, I even personally remember my mother calling me and saying, you know, can this actually happen? Can, you know, if, if we have all this debris, would this be really, really bad? You know, it's important so, if your mom calls you, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so my mother almost never asked me those kinds of questions. So, um, so anyway, we had a, a discussion about, you know, okay, what is debris? How in space, how could that affect uh, civil, commercial, national security activities? But so even if, you know, that depiction is unrealistic, which it is um, in the current time. It just underscores, certainly, you know, looking back 10, 15 years, the much greater growing consciousness about the environmental effects of doing um, any kind of activities in space that are debris producing. If I understand right, um, you, you've been obviously researching and writing on these topics uh, in academic journals, but also publicly accessible things like the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Um, are you planning on doing any book length projects related to the history of satellite weaponry? Yes. So I do have a book manuscript that is on the strategic defense initiative. And what it does is it looks at where did SDI come from? And so I, I place it within the context of this expanding militarization going back to the 1970s that we've discussed today. But then the other dimension of it is looking at how divergent views of the boundaries of space militarization affected U.S. relations with the Soviet Union and U.S. relations uh, with NATO partners and understanding how some of those disagreements and controversies about the boundaries of, of space militarization have spilled over into the post-Cold War era and we're still dealing with their effects to this day. Sure. Well, given the time frame of publishing, maybe uh, we'll be lucky and late next year <laughs> we'll get Hopefully. to see this Hopefully. coming out. We look forward to it. Uh, we end our conversations by reaching into our chatterbox, pulling out a random question. Uh, oh my goodness. The chatterbox is wise. Uh, should the United States send a manned mission to Mars? So I would say that that is a, it's not a simple question. I think it would depend on what are the motivations. Hmm. Um, and so I think it depends on, are you viewing this from the standpoint of it's important to signal to the world in a time of intensifying competition with China, that the U S is still preeminent in space technology. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that there are people who would be willing to buy into that argument. Um, but the other aspect of this is, you know, are you doing this because you want to have a long-term sustainable, uh, you know, human presence deeper hmm. in space, mm -hmm. but I think that there's always this geopolitical dimension. Um, and if we look at why the United States right now is is making investments towards sending humans beyond low Earth orbit, I don't think that we can divorce it from that broader geopolitical um, context with China. So I don't have a, a simple yes or no answer, but I think that it's essential to consider the broader motivations mm. before making that decision and that we should be very careful uh, before leaning on Cold War era characterization of space and, and you know, somewhat uh, reductive analogies between Apollo and, and, and a Mars mission today, because the geopolitical circumstances are, are very, very different. It may sound strange, but 
this conversation on uh, satellite weaponry and space debris and things that could go wrong has been a hell of a lot of fun. Aaron, thanks for joining us on Chatter. Thank you. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.